Well, amen. Well, I trust that your heart was prepared through song to continue to worship the Lord as we look to his scripture right now. And if you were not with us last week, uh, just to bring you up to speed, we began a study of the book of Ephesians. So I'd invite you to turn there now. And if you've got a bulletin, there's a handout there that'll help us follow along with what we have to share today. We introduced the book of Ephesians last week because the book of Ephesians is basically it's Christianity 101 of all the books in the New Testament. Very basic on saying what a church should do and what a church should be and also what a Christian should do and what a Christian should be. And so we're on lesson number two in the book of Ephesians. Uh, This week we're going to emphasize verses three all the way down to verse 14. It's an incredibly rich passage. Uh, There is so much here we can't possibly fathom the depth of what God would have us see in this passage, but we are going to hit the main highlights this afternoon. By the way, hopefully in three weeks from now is the very time what I would, I would be saying, okay, all the fifth graders on down, go with Mrs. Nunley to Children's Church and have a great time. And we'll see you in 45 minutes. So that's my prayer. Three weeks or something like that. Wouldn't that be fun? Yeah, anyway. So let's keep working on that. But in the meantime, let's go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 3 through 14. You follow along as I read. This is the Apostle Paul to Christians, which includes those of us that know Jesus personally. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Verse 7, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he, he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all the things in Christ, Things in the heavens and things upon the earth, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Verse 13, in him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise who has given us a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. That is a lot of information, a lot of supernatural truth to try to take in at one time. So we're going to see if we can try to break it down. But just by way of review, last week the main thing we highlighted, look in your Bible there, it was verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, this is what Paul said to Christians, blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And he was talking to Christians and he said, If you are a Christian, you have been blessed by God. You've been blessed by God in a supernatural way. You've been blessed in the heavenlies. You've been given supernatural blessings. And Paul wants Christians to know what their supernatural blessings are, what their supernatural resources are, and that's what Ephesians is all about. We talked about, well, what, what is one of those spiritual blessings? Well, the greatest spiritual blessing that you have received if you are a Christian is salvation. The moment you put personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in a sincere manner with clear understanding, you got saved. 
For me, that happened at age 19. That's when I became a Christian. That's when the Holy Spirit of God began to live inside of me, and that's when I had the gift of salvation, a spiritual blessing. And there is no greater spiritual blessing than personal salvation. Spiritual blessings. And as a matter of fact, verses 4 through 14, that's exactly what Paul is going to talk about. He's going to talk about the gift, the spiritual blessing of salvation. What is Christian salvation? There's a lot of confusion on that topic. And even for Christians, sometimes we think of salvation, we think of an event that happened at one moment of time. For me, it was when I was 19 years old in Santa Barbara, California, on a Friday night, that was salvation, and that's it. And that's all there is to the salvation story. A small minute of time, that's not what salvation is. That's not the whole story. And so what Paul gives us in verses 3 through 14 is the complete story of salvation from God's perspective. Did you know that from God's perspective, salvation began in eternity past and culminates in eternity future. That is the scope of salvation. And we're going to see that in this passage. It's amazing, verses 3 to 14. I broke it down into just three main points that I wanted to share with you today. And let's address those first. Then we'll go back and do the details of it. Three things regarding salvation that Paul wants us to understand. Point number one there that I've got in your handout. And I personalized it so that if you're a Christian, you could say this is true about you. Regarding the greatest spiritual blessing, you have your salvation. So if you're saved, you could say, number one, my salvation was planned in eternity past by the good pleasure of the Father. By the good pleasure of the Father. Amazing statement. Mind-boggling reality. Number two, my salvation was accomplished in history because of the price of Jesus' death. So it started in eternity past, was accomplished in time in history. And then number three, my salvation will be completed in the future because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So that is the scope of salvation. Began in eternity past, actualized in this life, in history, and will be completed in the future. So that the Christian literally could say, I have been saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved in the real sense of the term. So let's go back and look at some of the specifics of what we're talking about here, just back on point number one, where my salvation was planned in eternity past by the good pleasure of the Father. Uh, And I put three points down there, and the first one is, is that our salvation was God's choice. Our salvation was His choice. Now that goes against the grain of human nature many times. By the way, Uh, The topic we're dealing with right in Roman numeral number one, the idea that God planned our salvation in eternity past is beyond human comprehension. We cannot understand that. This is a revelation from God. And the only reason we know this is because God revealed this truth to us in the Scripture. And it's very clear in Ephesians chapter 1, this great truth, that our salvation was planned in eternity past. And our salvation was His choice. It was God's choice. Look at verse 4. Talking about salvation, the greatest spiritual blessing, just as He chose us. It's talking about God. God chose us. Past tense. God chose us for salvation. He did it in Christ. Because of the work of Christ, God was able to choose us. And by the way, in verse 4, the verb for choose, if you, if you knew Greek, it's in the middle voice, it's called. And literally, it could be translated, God chose for Himself. It's reflexive. God chose us for Himself to be His own possession. Well, when did God choose us? He chose us before the foundation of the world. So before you were born, 
before the world was created, before the angels were created, sometime in eternity past when the only thing that existed was God himself, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, God chose you or me, whoever got saved, for salvation. That's what that verse says. This is called election, the doctrine of election. Maybe you've heard it before. Maybe you've never heard it before. Or maybe you've heard a little bit about it and you didn't know much about it, but all you knew was, well, that's a controversial doctrine. Or it's those people who believe that. Or it's those who teach it. Or John Calvin, isn't he the one that invented election? Some people would say. And John Calvin was a guy that lived in about 1600, so about 400 years ago. And some people would say, well, John Calvin invented election. Well, actually, John Calvin did not invent election. Uh, The Bible invented election. God invented election. Jesus invented election. And we see it right here stated as truth in verse 4. Regarding your salvation and the great blessing that God wants us to know is that God chose us for salvation before the foundation of the world. He chose us for himself to be his own possession. This is called election. This is a supernatural truth, again, that defies human reason. Going back to verse 4 regarding election, or the word chose, some of your translations say he chose or he elected us. The verb there for chose or elect, this word is used about 30 times in the Bible. And most of the time it's translated as chosen or elect. That's where we get the word election. And it can refer to, and usually it's God making a choice beforehand. And many times it's God making a choice before the world was even created. And he's making a choice to do something. And he's usually choosing specific people for a specific purpose. And it's his purpose. So according to the Bible, God chose angels. He elected angels. God chose a nation, an elect nation, Israel. God chose the church as a corporate entity. God chose the Messiah, Jesus, for a specific task. And in the New Testament, it tells us clearly time and time again that God chose individual people for salvation before the foundation of the world. That is mind-boggling. It's an amazing truth. But this idea of election or God choosing by his own volition is all over the Bible. And I can't share all the verses for you, but just to show you that it's even in the Old Testament early on, just go to Deuteronomy chapter 7, because I want you to look at this verse. The the whole Old Testament is about the nation of Israel, that rinky-dink little nation over there in the Middle East that still exists today that, by the way, is on the front page of the newspaper and top of the news hour every single day. Isn't that amazing around the world? the nation of Israel, that's not a mistake. That is not a coinkydink. The entire Old Testament is about the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God says this about his special relationship with the nation of Israel uh, that is the continual theme all throughout the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. God is saying this through Moses to the nation of Israel. For you are a holy people, not that they were sinless, but God made them holy, or they were just a select, specifically called by God for a specific purpose. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, that's Yahweh. The Lord your God has chosen you or elected you to be a people for his own possession. So God is saying, Israel, you are elect. I chose you to be a people for his own possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So of all the nations that existed at that time, God elected or chose the nation of Israel. Verse 7, The Lord God did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any of the other nations, for you were the fewest of all the peoples. 
Verse 8, then why did God choose Israel? Because the Lord, the Lord loved you and kept the oath. That's the key to election. It was God made a choice to love somebody in a very special and specific way among and from out other people. So here you got God electing the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. God chooses certain people for specific things. And God chooses those who will believe through this process called election, and he did it before the foundation of the world. Now I'll go to the New Testament again, because Jesus talk, talked about this topic of election. Again, that is very hard to understand. As a matter of fact, I can't, I can't understand it. Humanly, it is impossible for me to understand, and I have just simply come to rest in faith. Okay, this is what you have revealed to be true, God. You teach it in your word, and Christianity is a religion of faith, and I just have to rest by faith that this is true. It's divine revelation. Look at John 15, verse 16. I just want to look at two statements that Jesus made that deal with this idea of election, that God chose specific people, totally up to his will, his volition, his choosing, apart from anything that we have done by his choice, and he did it before the foundation of the world for a specific purpose. Here John uh, writes that Jesus is talking to his apostles at the end of Jesus' ministry before he gets crucified, just before his death. And in John 15, he reveals this to them. Verse 16, he tells his disciples, and these are the believing disciples, the 11 apostles who trusted in him and who were saved at this point. He said, you did not choose me. That's what the Lord Jesus said to them. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I elected you. There is the doctrine of election right there, taught from the lips of Jesus himself. And I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And that's the same thing that Jesus could say to every Christian. You did not choose me in the ultimate sense, but I chose you. Well, how is this possible? Didn't I have something to do with it? Didn't I believe? I believe. I remember when I believed and I said the prayer and I trusted and I asked Christ to come into my life. So there was a human element or component involved. That's true. And the Bible teaches both sides. God's perspective, the ultimate eternal reality of election, and also the human perspective of what happened in time when we responded to the call of God in our life. And John addresses that in chapter 6. Look at John chapter 6. Again, Jesus talking on this topic of election, divine calling, where God chose us, elected us to salvation. It was His choice. John six forty four. Jesus is talking to His disciples and He says, No one can come to Me, and He's talking about salvation. Nobody can come to Me in a personal relationship unless the Father, God the Father, who sent Me draws that person. That's an amazing supernatural truth. And I will raise that person up on the last day. So he's talking about salvation. So here's the truth. Jesus says, nobody can come to Jesus Christ personally unless first God the Father has decided to work on the heart of that person through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes, works on the hearts of people, prepares them, gives them faith, gives them the ability to respond to the gospel. And at a moment in time in history, we believe, we put faith in Jesus, and we become a Christian. But God did all the groundwork in this life, before you got saved, through the work of the Holy Spirit, and even before you were born, and even in eternity past, God was planning your salvation, my salvation. That is the doctrine of election. One more verse that I want to share with you, and that's go back to the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. There are many people who listen and hear about the teaching of election, the doctrine of election, and they don't want anything to do with it because... They can't believe it. I mean, this is impossible. 
This is beyond human comprehension. Well, that's true. It is beyond human comprehension. But the Bible clearly teaches it. That's the only reason I believe it. But for election to be true and for it to be possible is you would have to have a God who knows everything, who knows the future before it even happens, and you'd have to have a God who is all-powerful and can do anything, right? And that's exactly what the Bible teaches about God. He has those attributes and characteristics. But Jeremiah chapter 1, Jeremiah the prophet quotes God, and here's what God said to Jeremiah and reminded him of. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, God is talking to Jeremiah the prophet, and he said, Before I formed you in the womb, Jeremiah, I knew you. Now, the Hebrew word there for new means I had a personal relationship with you. Really, I had a personal, affectionate, intimate love for you. Jeremiah, before you were even born, I loved you. I knew you before I even created you. Then he goes on, and before you were born, I consecrated you or called you to be a prophet. That is amazing. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. And that's just a testimony and speaks of this God who knows the future and can accomplish anything he wants to and according to his perfect purposes. Now go back to Ephesians chapter 1. Looking at this great doctrine of salvation that started in eternity past, it began with our God who knows all things and can do all things and at some point in the past chose to love you and love me in eternity past and chose us and elected us that we might be saved in this lifetime. That is the doctrine of election. And by the way, well, what was the basis by which God decided to choose us in eternity past when we didn't even exist yet and we hadn't done anything yet and we haven't thought a thought yet? What was the basis for which those that he chose and those he did not choose? That's a controversial question. But the Bible's clear about that as well. Uh, Look at 2 Timothy. We've got to look at these passages because they're very important on this very confusing and sometimes controversial doctrine of election. But look at 2 Timothy in your New Testament, chapter 1, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul tells us why God saved us and why He chose us before the foundation of the world. And God, did you choose to save me before the foundation of the world because you knew I was going to be a good guy and a nice guy and do good works and want to be a Christian? Was it based on what I was going to do or what I thought or my works? Now, if you believe that, then ultimately the decision for salvation is based on you or on humanity, isn't it? But the Bible says clearly all over the place, uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, that salvation is from the Lord. God is the author of salvation. God is the initiator of salvation from beginning to end. Salvation is not up to us. It's not up to our good works. It's not because uh, I pleased God in eternity past that he said, hey, there's a good guy, and God looks down the corridors of time, and, oh, I kind of like that McManus guy, and he seems reasonable, and he's going to do some good works, therefore I'm going to elect him unto salvation. That's not the teaching of the Bible. Well, what is the teaching then? 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul gives us a glimpse And he says that God has saved us and has called us with a holy calling during our Christian life, not according to our works. God saved us not according to our works, not according to what we were going to do or what we did do. Well, then why did he do it? But according to his own purpose. What is that purpose? I don't know. You know, today today it's a mystery for me. I don't know. When I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God, God, why did you do this? Why did you elect me? Why did I get this privilege? I wasn't worthy, but it's according to his purpose. Uh, The Bible says that clearly, and also it was according to his grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. You cannot earn grace. Salvation is of grace. You can't earn salvation. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. So that's the answer. What was the basis? It was God's purpose and his grace. That's pretty much all the scripture says. So it kind of leaves us hanging. Hence, the need for faith to believe this doctrine of election. We've got to walk by faith, not by sight, not by human 
understanding. And ultimately, like I said, the doctrine of election is a mystery, just as just about every other doctrine that's very important in Christianity is a mystery. It is beyond explanation from a human level. Think about it. The Trinity. The fact that there's one God made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are all three distinct persons and yet all equally God, yet there's one God. Three and one and one and three. That doesn't make sense to me, but that's what the Bible teaches. It defies human reason. It is a mystery. Only resolved in the mind of God. Someday I'm going to ask God when I get to heaven, God, can you please explain the Trinity to me? I don't understand it. Or the fact that Jesus was the God-man. Jesus came down here, He created the world, yet He came to the world that He created, and He was God 100%, and He was humanity 100%, yet without sin. And at the same time, He was the God-man. How is that possible? I don't know. It baffles my mind. It hurts my brain. Gives me a Charlie horse on the brain. And on and on it goes. You can think of every major doctrine of Christianity is a mystery. The Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is Almighty, Eternal God who created the universe and He's over all the world and the Holy Spirit is everywhere and yet if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Just part of the Holy Spirit? No, the whole Holy Spirit. Well, how can the whole Holy Spirit live inside of me and exist all throughout the universe at the same time? I don't know. It hurts my brain. The Bible also says that if you're a Christian, Jesus lives in you. Well, how is that possible? Just part of Jesus or a little bit of Jesus? I want all of Jesus. Well, all of Jesus lives in you. But Jesus also lives in heaven. And Jesus lives everywhere. How's that? I don't know. It's another mystery. Mysteries are all over the Bible. Mystery is the distinctive of Christianity. It defies human explanation. And that's why it's a religion of faith. Trusting God, believing Him at His word. Listen to this great verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. You might want to write this one down because this is just a great truth regarding mystery regarding Christian religion. Deuteronomy 29, 29. God said this through Moses to His people. It also applies to us. It says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. The mysteries of the universe belong solely to our sovereign God. Election is one of those. All the intricacies and details of the truths about election belong to God. But the things revealed belong to us, humanity and believers, and to our children forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. So God has revealed everything He wants us to know. God has revealed everything that we are responsible for, but God has not revealed everything there is to know. Because God is infinite in His knowledge, we are not. So we rest in this mystery that the secret things belong to the Lord. That gives me comfort. That's an awesome God that I can worship and have reverence and fear for. The idea that God knows more than I do actually comforts me. It doesn't disappoint me. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9 says that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth are God's ways and God's thoughts above our thoughts. There is an infinite chasm between almighty, eternal God and sinful, fallen humanity in terms of what we know and what we can comprehend. That's okay. It's a mystery. I will rest in that. So the doctrine of election is a mystery, but it is clearly taught in Scripture. And for some reason in eternity past, God decided to choose some to be saved for himself. So he goes on, just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to save us in order that we should be holy and blameless before him. So when we do get, I was elected in eternity past, but I got saved. I came to faith at age 19, and ever since age 19, God's purpose for me has been the middle of verse 4, to be holy, to be obedient, to be an example, to listen to God's word, 
and to be blameless before Him in this life. That is the calling of every Christian. God elected you before the foundation of the world. He saved you at a certain point in time so that He could use you so that you would be holy and blameless, a vessel for Him, an ambassador for Him. That is our purpose. Then he goes on regarding the nature of our salvation, this great salvation that we can find security in. Not only did He choose us in eternity past, point B there, I said our salvation was His plan. He predestined us. Look at verse 5. He predestined us. Some translations say He foreordained us. This is where the word predestination comes from. This word is only used about six times in the New Testament, as opposed to election used about 30. Predestination. And it's very specific in its meaning. It's always very limited in its meaning. It's always in the context of personal salvation, that God predestined those who were going to be saved. And the Greek word is very in, informational for us. It's a compound word in the Greek. Pre, which means before, right? That was easy. Some of you obviously took Latin and Greek growing up. Uh, predestination in the word destination, literally the Greek word is horizo, where we get the word horizon. Horizon before. What's a horizon? Well, you look out at the horizon, and the horizon is a line, a definitive line of demarcation between the sky and the land. That's what the horizon is. The horizon is a clear mark. It is a clear boundary line. So predestination, according to the Bible, is before the foundation of the world in eternity past. God elected those who He's going to save, and He carried it out through predestination, meaning He made a mark of demarcation around all those that He was going to save in eternity past. He predestined every one of us that was to be saved. He marked us clearly. He knew it clearly every single person by name he was choosing for personal salvation. That is predestination. It's a decision that God made before the foundation of the world for a specific purpose regarding salvation. That's predestination. So we were predestined, marked out by God, by name, to be saved in time. A great truth. So we have been elect by God and we have been predestined by God. So salvation is all of, all of God. It all comes from Him. It's not based on what I do. It's based on what God did. Some people get confused by predestination and they extend the meaning and they make predestination apply to everything. That everything was predestined. The fact that I go up and I, I punch you. Oh, that was predestined. I'm not responsible. Or I kick you or I say something mean. The Bible doesn't teach that. That has nothing to do with predestination. That's sin and stupidity. That's what that is. That's not predestination. Predestination, only used six times, always limited to personal salvation of God marking out those in eternity past that He chose to put His special love upon and fulfilled it in time and in history. We have been predestined. The word predestined is also used in verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined or foreordained according to God's purpose. Again, it's talking about for the purpose of salvation. Well, what was that specific purpose of why we have been predestined? He tells us in verse 4, Or verse 5, God predestined us to adoption as sons or as children. Before the foundation of the world, God chose us, elected us, predestined us, specifically marked us out so that we could be His sons and daughters in this lifetime. God purposed to adopt us. Now, who do you adopt? Parents adopt? What kind of parents adopt? And what kind of children are adopted? Well, you adopt children who are not naturally born of you, right? They are alien children, if you will. They're not of your biological pedigree or family necessarily. So you go through a special process or procedure to bring them into your family, and that process is called adoption. So we are not by nature God's children. That's another truth that the world teaches, that everybody that's born into the world is naturally a child of God. That is not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Jesus didn't teach that. 
Every person that is born into this world is born a sinner. That's what the Bible says. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, Psalm 51, verse 5. It's all over the Bible. We're born with a sinful nature. We are born separated from God personally because of Adam and Eve and their sin. And that's when it all started, back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve messed it all up. And ever since then, every person that's born into this world, I don't care how cute the baby is, the baby is a sinner separated from God, spiritually speaking. And that's why Jesus said every human being at some point needs to get to a point where they must be born again, spiritually regenerated, forgiven by Jesus Christ, so that they can enter into the family of God through spiritual adoption. We are not naturally born children of God. We must be spiritually adopted into His family. It is a privilege, not a natural right. Well, how do we get adopted into the spiritual family of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? It's by, it's by faith. It's by believing. It's by believing in the gospel. John chapter 1 says it better than anybody. John chapter 1 verse 12 says this, But as many as received Christ, trusted in Christ, believed in Christ, who He was, what He did, as many or whoever believed or received Christ, to them God gave the right to become children of God. And that right is adoption, spiritual adoption. So I was adopted into the family of God at age 19. Because before age 19, I was not in the family of God. I was not a child of God. And Ephesians is going to say, as a matter of fact, I was an enemy of God. That's the word that Paul uses in Ephesians. By nature, we are enemies of God at birth because of sin. So we must be adopted if we want to enter into God's family through spiritual adoption, and that is by belief in the gospel, the person of Jesus Christ, believing in his death and his resurrection on our behalf and asking him to come into our life. If you do that, you will be spiritually adopted into God's family. And by the way, when you get into adopted into God's family, you inherit all rights and privileges. Did you know that? Everything that belongs to God and Christ, once you become a Christian, belongs to you, literally, in terms of rights and privileges, and to me. Everything. One of the greatest possessions that King Jesus has at his disposal is the fact that he is king and ruler of the universe. He has a crown on his head to prove it. He has a scepter in his hand that he's going to rule with literally in the future. And he sits on a throne from on high. Did you know, according to Revelation chapter 2 and 3, that if you're a Christian, someday part of your inheritance is that you're going to get to sit on Jesus' throne? Wow. To sit on the king's throne and rule and hold his scepter and rule with him? That's just one example of the inheritance that waits the Christian and that came by adoption, spiritual adoption, which God accomplished through predestination. Amazing truth to encourage our hearts. Well, what, is the, what was God's purpose ultimately in all of this? By choosing to elect me, to save me, to predestine me, to adopt me, to give me an inheritance. Why did he do all this? To make me happy? Or what is the ultimate purpose? Well, Paul tells us in verse 6. And that's letter C. Our salvation has an eternal purpose. What is it? The purpose is for God's glory. Verse 6. It is to the praise of the glory of His grace. God accomplished all these things through salvation with sinful humanity to bring Himself glory. To put His own glory on display. For all of the world, for all of eternity, for all of the angels to reveal His glory. That phrase, to the praise of His glory, is repeated three times. Verse 6. Look at verse 12. The end. To the praise of His glory. The end of verse 14. To the praise of His glory. It is all about God. It is all about His glory, His goodness, what He did, His grace on our behalf. It has nothing to do with us. It is all of God. And that's why we come to church. To praise Him. That's why we praise Him. For what He did on our behalf. Saving us. 
undeserving sinners, to Him be the glory. So my salvation was planned in eternity past by the good pleasure of the Father. And then God accomplishes that salvation in history through the person of Jesus Christ and then also through our personal response. And that's point number two. My salvation was accomplished in history because of the price of Jesus' death. That's verses 7 and 8. By the way, salvation is accomplished by the triune God. Who saved me? Was it God the Father, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Answer is yes. God the Father saved me, Jesus saved me, and the Holy Spirit saved me. That's clear in Ephesians. This whole thing is about salvation and how it's accomplished. You got the Father mentioned in verse 3 and several other references to him. You got Jesus uh, mentioned several times regarding what he accomplished in terms of salvation, including verse 7. And then you've got the work of the Holy Spirit and what he had to do in accomplishing our salvation at the end of this passage, 13 and 14. So the triune God accomplished salvation for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And it has three components relative to time and eternity past, the present, eternity future. It's amazing. So what was Jesus' part specifically? Well, I said there that Jesus purchased our salvation. Did you know that we had to be purchased or bought back? Somebody owned us. Who owned us? Well, actually that word there, look at verse 7. In Him, that's Jesus Christ is talking about, because He's the reference in verse 5. In Christ we have redemption through His blood. And I want to zero in on the word for redemption there. It's a very specific word in the New Testament. It means that we were purchased and the imagery is from the slave, the slave block, where human beings were bought and sold as slaves. And if you had enough money and you wanted a specific slave, you would redeem him. You would buy that slave, and then that slave would become yours. You would become his owner in every conceivable way. So you would redeem that slave. You would buy that slave, and you had to usually pay a pretty hefty price if you wanted a good slave. So we were slaves. Sinners were born slaves. Well, what were we slave to? Well, I know my biography. According to the Bible, when I was born, I was a slave to sin. I was a slave to self. I was a slave to Satan. That's what John the Apostle and Jesus said. If you don't know God, then the devil's your father. And I was a slave to this world, the sinful things of this world. So I was a slave to a lot of masters. And I needed to be bought and purchased with the right price so I can be freed from all of these things so that the chains could fall off, like the song that we sang earlier. Somebody needed to liberate us and free us from our sin and our slavery. And that's what Jesus did. He did it according to verse 7. We have redemption through His blood. Jesus bought us. Jesus purchased us. Well, how did He do that? How much did He pay? Well, Jesus paid the ultimate price. What was the price that He paid? Jesus paid with the price of His blood. What does that mean? That just means Jesus paid with His life. That means that He died for us. That was the price that was required to set us free, to be purchased out of the slavery of sin, because that's what God said. God God the Father was the one that said what the price would be for somebody to be purchased from sin. God said that. The wages of sin is death. So death is the wage. Death is the penalty. And that's not just physical death. That's also eternal death. So somebody had to die to be punished for our sin so that we could be purchased back and be forgiven of sin and be in God's family. And Jesus Christ was the one that paid. He paid with His life. And he gave it through his death. Uh, go to 1 Peter. I want you to look at this verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, because it talks about that. How Jesus paid the price for salvation with his life by shedding his blood. And that only Jesus' life and only Jesus' blood could pay the penalty of human sin. No other human could pay the penalty for sin because every other human that was born aside from Jesus was sinful. 
I was born sinful. I couldn't pay the price of my own sin, let alone anybody else's sin. Jesus was the only one that could pay the price for sin also because Jesus is infinite because He is eternal God. And that's why He and only He could pay the price that God the Father required that needed to be paid. It had to be an infinite, perfect, holy price that was paid. Only Jesus could offer that. Look at verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 1. And if you address Christian as father, the one who impartially judges according to each person's work, then conduct yourselves in this life in fear during the time of your stay here upon the earth, knowing, Christian, that you were not redeemed or purchased with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life when you were an unbeliever inherited from your fathers, but you were purchased with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, that is the blood of Jesus Christ. We were purchased with Jesus' blood, His death. And Jesus made it possible because He came down here on earth. He lived a perfect life for 30 years. He was the perfect human. He fulfilled every law that God required of Him. He never sinned. And then He died on the cross willingly. And when He was on the cross, who did Jesus get punished by when He was on the cross? Some people say He got punished by Satan. No, He did not get punished by Satan. Jesus got punished by God the Father when He was on the cross. And he absorbed all the wrath of God for all the sin of the world on the cross willingly. And God's wrath was poured on him and then he was buried. And then he rose again from the dead, ensuring victory over sin. Letting us know that he fulfilled the price that needed to be paid on behalf of sin. So Jesus paid the ultimate price and that was through his atonement, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. And if you believe in that personally and you ask Jesus to come into your life, forgive you of your sins that you will be redeemed, you will be instantly purchased from the slave market of sin, self, Satan, the world, and you will be adopted into God's family now and forevermore, even in eternity. And that was Jesus' part in accomplishing salvation in history on our behalf. It was the price of his death. Let's go on to number three. What was the part of the Holy Spirit in accomplishing salvation from eternity past to eternity uh, future? Well, that's verses 9 through 14. Follow along as I read that. In accomplishing salvation on our behalf, uh, Paul says that, verse 9, He made known to us the mystery of His will. Now this terminology gets very confusing in verses 9 and 10, but at the beginning of verse 9, all that means is, when you became a Christian, God let you know what His plan of salvation was. Did you know before you became a Christian, you didn't know the plan of salvation? You didn't know what God was doing? You didn't know what He was trying to accomplish? You didn't know the ultimate questions to reality? Did you know that most people on planet Earth today, they don't know the ultimate answers to reality? Why are we here? How did we get here? Where are we going? What happens when a person dies? Are there other beings living out there in the universe somewhere? How do you get to heaven? What happens to you die? And on and on it goes. Those are ultimate questions of reality. We don't know those answers. They only come by revelation of what God has told us in the Scripture. And regarding salvation, God has revealed to us this great truth. That's the beginning of verse 9. God made known to us the mystery of His will regarding this plan of salvation. Well, why did He do that? Well, it was according to His kind intention. Because He's kind. God didn't have to reveal the plan of salvation to us, but He did. And the plan of salvation, I'm talking about the whole scope of salvation. From election in eternity past, of the purpose of why Jesus accomplished uh, salvation in history, and what God is going to do in the future regarding its salvation. We know what's going to happen at the end of the world. God has revealed it to us. How is the world going to end? I don't know. For some reason, when I was growing up as a kid, I had an ultimate fear about what was going to happen to the world and how it was going to end. And I guess that's because I was getting inundated with all kinds of information of how the world was going to end. 
Things I was told growing up as a kid, even as an elementary kid, in school, at home, from my friends. Did you know that the world is going to end when the Russians attack us in World War III and it's probably going to happen in the 1970s or the 1980s? And I believed that and I was scared to death. I thought the world was going to end with World War III in the 70s and 80s, but it didn't. Surprise. 